my story. Throughout life, I struggled with being a workaholic, constantly focused on not only obtaining the task of the day, but focusing on the next rung on the ladder and trying to figure out how I could climb one step higher. Due to my focus being on work, I never had time to spend with my children and my wife. I would tell you that I was a Christian throughout all of my married life. We tried. We did the things that we're taught to do. But there was one little thing in my life that became a big thing, and it was this drive to succeed. Thinking back to those early years in the lives of our children, I have to reflect on how many volleyball games I missed, how many soccer games I missed, how many basketball games I missed, because I was too busy. Looking back, I wish that were different. I think today, while I have a much, much better relationship with my children, I certainly remember how important it was from the time they were babies and then teenagers and then young adults. They needed mom and dad, and dad was not there. But uh, ultimately, I was challenged by my pastor saying, you know, you really need to go on a mission trip. It will change your life. And I remember so well looking at my ministry and saying, you know, I'm 62 years old. You're probably not going to change me. And he said, well, you just need to go. I think it will change you. Ultimately, my wife and I uh, ended up uh, taking part in a uh, trip to Kenya, Africa, to an abandoned baby center operated by the African Gospel Church. And uh, we were there on a work project, and uh, typical of my nature and my type A personality, once we arrived, I was pretty focused on what is the task, uh, let's get it done, painting, completing the structure, building a water tower, so on and so forth. And uh, the lady who was the wife of our team leader on this trip came to me and said, have you spent any time with the babies? I said, well, I'm really pretty busy. We've got to get this room painted, got this water tower finished. She said, well, we really want you to spend some time with the babies. And I will never, never forget these little abandoned souls, these little African babies, and how they touched my heart. And uh, God gave me just the right ones because they fell asleep in my arms in a rocking chair. And uh, God began to change my heart and my focus and say, you know, this is really far more important in the scope of what I'm interested in than some of the things you've been focused on. Thinking back in time, all of the focus that I had on climbing that ladder. Nothing wrong with business, nothing wrong with success, but boy, you get those priorities out of whack and things begin to mess up. God is saying, hey, that isn't what matters. What matters is your focus on me, your heart being right, and uh, serving others. And I, I was reminded recently here at Scottsdale Bible in my Sunday school class that God is far more interested in uh, our availability than he is our ability. All right, let's pray. Father, we uh, want to deal with a difficult subject today that uh, some people have a trouble with, this whole idea of how to gain more margin in our time. And so I pray that as we turn to your book now after having given our hearts and worship to you and 
hopefully focus our minds on you, that, God, you would now speak to us. Uh, God, we know that you are one who reveals yourself to those who humble yourselves, be, some of themselves before you. So we pray, God, that you might reveal truth to us now as we take a look at this very counterculture subject before us. Thanks for Bernie and for his story. Hopefully that set us up to begin thinking about our own lives in light of your word. We pray that you would move now in our minds and our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So one thing we know that the church has been for 2,000 years, the Christians have been, and almost every culture that they have found themselves in is that they have always had to go against the grain of culture and be rather counter-cultural. I know it's not really a Scottsdale thing to do, but, but it's what the church has done for 2,000 years now. And that when you think about it, we live in a fallen world that will lead to fallen cultures that will lead then to people making a mess of society. And part of our redemption, part of our following of Jesus as his followers are at times to go against the things of culture that we know are not good for them and certainly not good for us. And so this is why the church in our modern day times tries to talk about things like sanctity of life, the erosion of family values, prayer in the public sector, sexual values, even justice for the poor and strangers in our land. We have always been about vying for the things that God is about, even in the culture that we're in, and that involves us being rather countercultural at times. And the reason that I mention this is because the topic that we started last week, though one that many people don't necessarily see as a countercultural thing, it really is. I mean, when you think about it, this idea of margin, trying to gain time, financial, emotional, and physical reserves in our life by telling people to slow down and start to prioritize the things that God is about is actually a very countercultural thing. We don't hear much about this in our culture today, and as we learned last week in our setup time for this series, progress, this thing that thought, so many thought would bring just absolute blessing to our lives, and in many ways that it, ha it has, has also robbed us of many things. Progress has brought a whole new set of ills to our emotions and to our physical lives, to our spiritual lives that nobody saw coming, not the least of which have robbed us of margin in our lives. And so consider the topic before us today, that of gaining margin in your time. Do you realize that your time is under attack today? It really is personal margin-laden time according to almost every cultural indicator is getting to be more and more of a precious thing a scarcer uh, commodity in our technologically advanced postmodern world if you don't believe me check this out time magazine back in the late 1960s reported that a 1967 senate subcommittee hearing on time management stated that by 1985 with the rise of advances in technology there would be such a freeing up of personal time that you would be able to choose from one of three things by 1985 you'd be able to choose from a 22-hour work week a 27 work week year or you could retire at the age of 38. Your senators, the U.S. government, predicted this way back in 1967 that this would happen by 1985 and answer this with me. Has that come true? Not at all. 
In fact, and I don't mean to be a downer, the opposite has actually happened. Progress has not given us more time with all of our time-saving devices. It's actually taken it away. And so a Harris survey was done a few years back, and it revealed that the amount of leisure time that the average American enjoys has actually decreased by 37% since 1973. And so we say, well, how, how could that be? Well, here's the other stat along with that. Over the same time period, the average work week, including commuting, has jumped from 41 hours a week to 47 hours a week. So all of these time-saving things that we invented during the technological revolution, like the assembly line and electricity and things like that, have brought wonderful things to our lives, but they've actually consumed more of our time, not less of our time. And so this has caused Jeremy Rifkin, author of the book Time Wars, to say this. Look up here on the screen. He says, the modern world of streamlined transportation, instantaneous communication, and time-saving technologies was supposed to free us from the dictates of the clock and provide us with increased leisure. Instead, there never, seems to never be enough time. He says, tangential or discretionary time, once a mainstay of life, is now a luxury. Let me ask you, do, do you feel that in your life? I do. I, I mean, I've worked so hard, as we're going to hear later on today, to develop time margin in my life. But I'm telling you, it is an uphill climb in the world that you and I live in. Progress has brought a whole new set of struggles when it comes to you and I trying to develop time, like, or time margin like we never saw coming. If you're still unconvinced, you'll get a laugh out of this. Look up here on this screen. And listen to what the experts state that the average American will spend time doing and how much time in the 21st century. We will spend six months waiting in traffic lights for them to change. Six months. We'll spend one year searching through your desk for misplaced objects. You will spend eight months opening junk mail, two years trying to call people who aren't in, five years waiting in line, and three years in meetings. Makes you nauseous, doesn't it? In addition, the average person will commute 20 to 45 minutes each day to work, be interrupted 73 times every day. In fact, they have studied this and found out that if you're a manager, a middle-level manager, you'll be interrupted once every eight minutes on your job. And in addition, you'll be exposed to 600 advertised messages every day from newspapers, magazines, TV, radio, billboards, and now the computer. Please see, time, what our 20th century culture promised would be freed up has now been robbed by the same progress in the 21st century. And so you and I, hopefully, are Christians here today. The vast majority of us are followers of Jesus. And again, going back to what I said earlier, for those of us who now hear the call to go against culture, we got to ask, what are we to do? But what are we to do with progress that in so many ways has brought good things but has robbed us of other things? How do we actually get time margin back in our life? Two things I want to share with you today. One thing that will help us think differently about time that will be very, very important. We need to develop a theology of time. And then the other thing, the second thing, that will help us behave differently about time. So first, to help us think differently about time, here's what the Bible affirms, and that is that God has created and controls time. I know it sounds simple, 
But this is such a profound thing that the Bible reveals to us God created and he controls time. If you brought a Bible with you, I want you to open up to the very first book in the Bible, to the very first chapter in the Bible, to the very first verses in the Bible. If you've ever had trouble finding a passage in the Bible, this one's <laughs> going to be easy. I want you to open up to the very beginning of the book, Genesis chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. If you didn't bring a Bible, I'll put the scripture up here on the screen. But there's one in the pew rack in front of you. So Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Try to dial in to what this tells us about God and creating time here. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now, two things I want you to notice very richly that this passage talks about. First, theologians and Bible experts point out that this passage is telling us that before anything else was, before any matter was created, there was God. So theologians say it this way, God is eternally existing. He exists outside of time. He is also self-existent. He doesn't need anything or anybody to exist. So God is a self-existing, self-satisfying trinity. We see the Holy Spirit mentioned here. Jesus will come into play in the New Testament. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So please see, God exists before anything is. God is eternally existent. And that includes time. And that brings us to the second thing this passage teaches us. And that is that the very first thing that God created when he created matter, now don't miss this, was time. It says there in verses 3 through 5 that out of the void he created light and darkness, day and night, evening and morning, the first day. And then it says he separated them. And how do you think he separated them? By time. That's why it says a day, a morning, an evening. And what's even most fascinating is that God hadn't created the moons and the stars yet. That doesn't come till the fourth day. So there couldn't be a, like a literal day and evening, at least with the sun rising and the moon and all that. But God created time, an actual day, way before he even created the other stuff. It's Genesis's way of telling us that God is the maker of time. That when you and I, if you're a scientist, look at the space-time continuum, what the Bible tells us is that that was God's idea, that he invented it, he designed it, he created it. So time is God's thing. And not only did he create it, but the Bible makes it also clear that he controls it. If you don't believe me, look at Acts chapter 17, verse 26, talking about this idea of God and time. It says, And he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. We all know that. Now here it is. Having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. I actually like how the New International Version of the Bible says it here. It says, and I quote, God determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. So this is telling us that God is absolutely sovereign. He is in control of everything in our lives, including, it makes it very clear here, our time. 
And folks, the reason that this short theology lesson is so incredibly important to know is because many of us feel today like time is a runaway train. You ever felt that? It's careening out of control. You get to the end of your day or certain parts of your day and the clock just keeps on ticking and you don't have the time to do what you're doing and you're like, oh my gosh, this thing's getting away from me. Or we feel like time is kind of like a, a mist in the morning where it was just kind of floating out there with no way to catch it or control it. When what the Bible tells us is that time is God's. He created it. He controls it. And so many of us feel at times like we're subject to and held captive by our time with commitments and deadlines and things to do and expectations of others. In the end, however, we need to see time for what it is. We need to repent in our thinking and realize that it is God, not progress, who controls time. It is through him that you and I can become free once again when we start to honor time and live our time on his terms. It is what our salvation and sanctification and redemption in part are about. The Bible uses the word repent. Scary word today for many 21st century progressive people. But all the word repent means is to turn. That you used to see things this way, but now in your mind you see it this way. And I think many of us need to repent in how we view time. We've seen time as something that progress dictates. It's not. It's something that God dictates. Now, at this point, and only at this point, are we now ready to talk about a second key aspect of time. And this has to do with how you and I now need to behave differently with the time we have. And this is very similar to the first point. You'll get it here. And that is that what the Bible affirms is that once you get that God controls and manages time, he created and controls time, we are now to likewise manage and control the time that he gives us. If you read on in Genesis 2 and 3, which you don't have time to do today, it's going to tell us that you and I now have dominion over this earth. You might have heard that word before. It means that we need to care for our earth. We need to care for all the resources that God has created and blessed us with, the animals and the earth, and our time. Because again, that's the first thing that he created there when he created matter. So we're to have dominion over our time. We're to be like God in the sense that as he controls time, we're to control the time that he has given us. You know, it's interesting. If you look up in an English dictionary, that word manager or steward, here's the definition you're going to get. Very interesting. It tells us that a manager is one who is in charge of or looks after another's property or interest, right? A manager is somebody who's in charge of or looks after somebody else's property or interest. And so we all know that a manager of a company is usually looking after or managing that part of the company for the CEO or the owner of the company. Or if you're a money manager, a financial manager, you're usually managing other people's money and helping them invest it wisely, or at least giving them wise counsel. Or if you're into sports, a sports manager, like a manager of a professional baseball team, is usually managing it for somebody else, for the owner. And so we all get this, that managers almost always are people who need to be good stewards of what they're controlling because it's somebody else's company, somebody else's money, and somebody else's sports team. And that's the point. God, as we have seen, has created and given us time. That's why that theology is so important. And you and I now are called to be nothing more and nothing less than good managers 
of the time we have been given. And it's so very important for us to notice this as Christians. Time is not our own. And it's not to be dictated by progress or even the world around us. It begins and ends with God. And so in a very practical way, look at how Ephesians 5, verses 15 and 16, again, in light of this Genesis 1 theology of time, states this to us. It's inescapable. It says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Now here it is, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. And then Colossians 4, verse 5 says something almost identical. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, again, making the best use of the time. You know, it's fascinating, that twice-repeated phrase there, best use of the time, is actually translated by the New King James Version or the old authorized standard version as redeeming the time, redeeming the time. And I actually like that translation better because you see it's bouncing off the Greek word exergorazo, and that Greek word literally means to buy up, to ransom, to rescue from loss, or to redeem. So the translation best use is probably not the best translation there. It really means more redeem. It carries with it the idea that something has been stolen, taken away, or captured, and you now have the task to get it back. And in light of this discussion of time, which is Ephesians 5 and Colossians 4, the context there, it's telling us that if time ever gets away from you, if it ever gets stolen or captured by, say, progress, your job as a follower of Jesus Christ is now to get it back. Your job is to make the best use of the time that God has given you, realizing that he gave it to you in the first place. And that he's empowered you with his Holy Spirit who lives inside of you to now make choices to manage his time and gain margin in it. It's that important, folks. And the good news is, as I said last week, all of us can get margin in our life. All of us can have victory here because God has given us choice. And as we're seeing with time, we are not under its mercy. It's actually the other way around. If we choose to, time is our friend and quite frankly, it's under our mercy. And so once we get this, the only question left is how? How do we effectively manage our time in such a way that we make the best use of it and even gain margin in it in such a way that it pleases God and benefits us? Two things I want to share with you in the time we have remaining today. Two things that we must do if we're serious about gaining time margin. Two things that will counter the stampede of progress that promised to give us more time and has reneged on that promise. And the first thing that we must do is slow down. We need to slow down. So I was sitting in my office this week, and as you guys know, I'm a lawyer's kid, so when I prepare a sermon, I'm constantly thinking about you all and how you might counter my point, because that's how lawyer's kids think. I was raised as a little guy to do that. So I'm constantly thinking, you know, when I get to this point of saying slow down, what would a cynic among you, not that any of you are cynical, but what would a cynic among you say? And here's what I came up with, and this is probably more about me than you, but I thought if I was pushing back, I'd say, well, that's not very profound, Jamie. I mean, tell me something I don't know. Don't you have something more substantive to say about gaining time margin than slowing down? And though I am going to give you the second thing here in a minute, the short answer is no, I don't. 
And the reason is, now tell me if this isn't true, is it because for those of us who have gotten all caught up in the tyranny of the urgent, combined with multiple kids' activities, long hours at work, too much time in front of the television, for those of us who are just skimming across the surface of life, then the first step, obviously, is that we must, we must, we must slow down. And you see, what makes this so incredibly hard is that one thing that progress has brought that nobody really saw coming is an incredible sense of urgency and rush. That's the world that you and I live in. It is incredibly fast-paced compared to anything in the history of the known world. That futurist David M. Zak calls it hyper-living just skimming across the surface of life. E.F. Schumacher called it the forward stampede. And one of the greatest myths of modern day living that all of us have bought into, because it's really the American way, is that more equals better. It's true. I mean, it is so quintessential American to say a bigger house is better, more hours at work is better, having a longer vacation is better, having more things is better, having more money is better, getting more thrills is better. I mean, we live just by the very nature of being an American with the idea that more equals better. But I would submit to you today that it's just not true. More does not always equal better, especially when more creates an intensity of overload and rush. And study after study today has found that productivity, joy, contentment, and peace go down drastically with too much more. That when you have too much more in your life, you eventually reach what experts call a saturation point, even more as we're going to see of a good thing, and eventually productivity, contentment, joy, and relationality in your life will start to be affected and it will go down. And so listen to Juliet Shore, a Harvard Business School lecturer and author of the book The Overworked American. Listen to what she has found in her research. She says, and I quote, no evidence exists to show that longer hours lead to productivity. They may actually have the opposite effect as people get too weary to do their best thinking. And it's true. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. I have. I'll share in a minute here. I have learned over the years where my saturation point is, and though I don't always live it, I know that for me, there's a certain number of hours of work in any given week, a certain amount of hours of study or even relationship, whatever, in which I reach a saturation point and I am no longer effective. And though I have more hours to do it, I do so at my own peril. Uh, maybe look at it this way. Uh, human beings are capable, because God's wired us this way, we're incredibly made, at functioning at either 80%, 100%, or even 110%. We are as human beings. In other words, we can function with filled but having margin or filled to the brim or even at certain times we are capable in our humanness at functioning at 110% in just an overload capacity. Now again, I know how some of you are thinking. You're thinking, well, I know people who function, Jamie, at 50%. This series isn't for them, all right? <laughs> Someday we'll do a series on laziness and sloth and things like that. And if you have a friend or if you fit into that, we'll do a series for you someday. But just go with me right now. We're not talking about the 50% person. We are talking here about those of us who know we need some margin and we will tend to function somewhere between 80 and 110%. And here's my question for you. On any given day, be honest with yourself now, 
where do you most function? If, I, if you had to put a percentage to it, at what pace, at what capacity of filling do you function at emotionally, relationally, uh, physically, with your time, with your money? Where are you at? Because you see, I think the average Christian today, the average good-hearted follower of Jesus would function somewhere between 95 and 105%. And that's the way I observe most of our lives functioning. And that's the point, is that the way that most of us live our lives, the first thing that God says to us is you got too much. You need to slow down because at the pace you're going, you're never going to hear my still small voice and you're not leaving what Franklin Graham calls enough God room in your life for me to, to surprise you with joy and bring things into your life that I'm looking to bring. And this is kind of funny, a cardiologist, Dr. Meyer Friedman, who was one of the first doctors to describe and write about type A personalities years ago, used to give this advice to his patients. I love this. He would say, look up here on the screen, practice smiling. Purposely speak more slowly. Stop in the middle of some sentences, hesitate for three seconds, then continue. Purposely say, I'm wrong at least twice a day, even if you're not sure you're wrong. <laughs> Listen to at least two persons today without interrupting even one. Seek out the longest line at the bank. Verbalize your affection to your spouse and children. Isn't that great? I, I mean, long before we even started talking about this thing called margin, people were realizing that progress is slowly doing something nasty to our souls into our relationships. And this is the advice of, of, of just a guy who observes this. Uh, Psalm 37, verse 7 says this. It's a special verse. It says, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Uh, Zechariah 2, verse 13 says something very similar. It says, be silent all flesh before the Lord. And what hit me this week is that the sad reality is that many of us cannot even come close to living out these passages because we have so very little downtime in our lives. And when we do have downtime, it's either spent sleeping or crashing in front of the TV or dreaming about the next vacation. And God, who loves you, God, who created and controls time, calls us to slow down as managers of our time and begin living at a realistic pace so that we have, have some margin to hear him, to experience him, for him to come into your life and do something you've been waiting for him to do but he won't do it in the midst of all the hustle and bustle. He wants you to slow down in his presence. And again, I know how some of you think. You're saying to yourself right now, well, Jamie, that's easy for you to say you're a pastor, but you don't understand the demands on my time. Work, family, community, church, I mean, the pressure is intense, and it's very hard to simply slow down as a way to create margin. I still don't think it's all that profound. All right. This leads me to the second and final thing that I want to share with you today about gaining margin, and this is guaranteed to work if you have the guts to do it. And that is, you must brutalize your to-do list. If you want to gain margin in your time, you want to slow down to be in his presence and get healthy emotionally, you need to brutalize your to-do list. You see, here's the dilemma that most of us has in our lives, and that is that we have bought into the lie, tell me if this isn't true, that good plus good plus good plus good plus good plus good plus good equals good. And it astounds me that as adults we live this way because we were taught when we were three years old that too much of a good thing is not a good thing. We all taught that. 
like a three-year-old wants eight Snicker bars at three in the afternoon. You're like, I don't think so. I mean, it's good to have a little sweet now and then, but too much of a good thing is not a good thing. And we teach our teenagers that. You know, we took, we took this one trip. You have an allowance. Too much of a good thing is not a good thing. And yet as adults, especially as Americans, we don't live life like that at all. I mean, think about your life. You got a good job, hopefully. You got a good spouse who might also have a job. You got kids in sports, kids taking music lessons, kids in camp, hobbies that you love, biking, golfing, cars, church activities, service commitments, civic and leadership involvement, family priorities, friends to be with, vacations to take. I mean, that's your life. And they are all good things. No argument with that. But somewhere along the line, if you're serious about margin for your own soul, a particular good thing has to go in order to get joy-producing, sanity-creating margin. And the only way to accomplish this is to brutalize your to-do list of all the good things that you have on it, cutting out some of the good things in your daily, weekly, monthly routine that are robbing you of margin. Uh, Merrill Douglas is the president of the Time Management Center in Marietta, Georgia, and I think he nailed it when he said this. Look up here on the screen. He said, most of us are overcommitted, duh. There's no way to organize yourself out of that problem except to say no. He says, working parents say yes to so much, but the reality is there's no way you can make it all fit, no matter how efficient you are. Now listen, he says, you can't expect to squeeze your size 16 schedule into a size six day. Some of you men going, what's it talking about? Ask your wife, she knows that terminology. <laughs> and that's the point, is that there's no way you and I are going to gain time margin without brutalizing our to-do list. And here's another thing that you can add to this. The only way to brutalize your to-do list is to ruthlessly prioritize that which you value the most. And for a Christian, it obviously involves what God values the most and what he calls us to do. So brutalizing your to-do list takes ruthlessly prioritizing. And though it's not easy, it's necessary if we're ever going to gain time margin. I said to you all last week that uh, my friends who know me best have been uh, teasing me about the fact that I'm speaking on margin. They think it's an absolute experiment and hypocrisy that I'm the one up here talking about this subject. And I think that's fair. And I think that there are plenty of areas in my life where, where I can use more margin. However, and you would use the same defense if you were me, life tends to be relative and I'm a lot better than I was. So if you had known me 20 years ago, and if you had been Kim and married to me, you would be falling down and calling me blessed for some of the changes that I've made in my life over the last 20 years. And one of the things that I have done happened about 15 years ago when one of my mentors challenged and whacked me over the head with some truth about my life. And he said, dude, you need to prioritize who you are and what roles you're going to play as a pastor, a husband, a friend, all the things, and you need to put it in print and put it in order and live it. I, what are you talking about? He said, you need to make a list of what roles you have in life and when what order you're going to prioritize those roles and then start brutalizing that priority list, ruthlessly prioritizing the things that you feel God has called you to. 
So I can remember when this happened because this was back in the days of those little digital organizers, you know, when they first came out. And I've always been a tech guy, and so I had my little digital organizer back in the mid-90s, and I, and I made a list one day as I was having a quiet time of just the things of who I am and, and what roles I want to play. And I wrote these five things down. Look up here on the screen. I've kept this with me ever since then. I am, one, a child of God. Secondly, I'm a husband to Kim. Thirdly, I'm a father to Hannah, Abby, and Paul. Fourth, I'm a minister to the flock. And fifth, I'm a servant to the community. In that order, that is who I am in my identity. I am a child, don't you love that? A husband, a father, a minister, and a servant. And that's my priority list. Some of you might disagree with that. Some of you think that some of those should be shuffled around. These are the values that I believe from God's word that I need to have for my life. And I got to tell you, folks, when I came up with this list, it was a game changer. I mean, the way I've been living my life before this list, you can ask Kim, was totally different. When I realized this, I was like, oh, my gosh, I have to make changes in my life. I started to behave differently based upon this list that I had written here. And as a result of this list, over the last 15 to 17 years, many of the things that people think I should be doing, I don't do. And I get in a lot of trouble with this list. I wake up every day, I think I've shared this with you guys before, I wake up every day with email guilt, every day. I, I get so many emails, and I love the encouraging ones, so keep sending those, I don't like the other ones, so you can, <laughs> don't send those. But I, I get so many emails, and even in my personal email box, which many of you don't have, it's my private email, after Easter I woke up and I just cringed when I looked. I had 145 unanswered emails in my inbox after Easter. I was heading out for a trip and I just shut my computer and said, I, I'm ignoring that, I just can't even take it. And I live every day with a tremendous amount of email guilt. And I'm tempted to spend many of my free moments, many of them, answering email. But let me ask you a question. Where on that priority list would email be? See, I don't get emails from my daughter hardly ever. She calls me. I, I hardly ever get emails from Kim. I see her every day. I, I don't get any emails from God. It's already in his word. So when you think about it, out of that priority list there, emails by their very nature will fall into number four or number five. That's the reason I deal with guilt. Because when I'm living in the center of God's will for me, I'm not answering emails. But when I'm prioritizing ruthlessly the things that God wants me to prioritize, time with him, focus on Kim, time with Hannah, Abby, and Paul, even under number four and five, you organic human beings made in the image of God who need a face-to-face -face contact with me, I'm telling you, emails start to pale. And I know that's not technologically savvy. I know it's not even probably politically correct, but that's one of the things I deal with all the time in my life, and it's a priority that I make. So if I don't ever get back to you on email, chill out. I'm following God, and I think it's a good thing to do. I am going to remind all of you, you clap for this, every one of you. I, I limit things that I do outside of my church. In fact, I only sit on two boards. Other than that, I say no to about everything. I don't speak often outside of Scottsdale Bible Church. I'm not asked often, mind you, but I don't speak often outside of Scottsdale Bible Church. I've limited my hobbies over the years. I love to golf and I love cars and things like that, but I'm not doing much of that right now. 
Even new ministries that I want to start in this church. There's times I'm going to bed and I just dream about if our church had this ministry, man, we'd be that prevailing church. We'd be the church everybody wants to come to and yada, yada, yada. And I, and I say, no. I, I ruthlessly prioritize. And it comes at a price. It's painful at times. But I gain margin. Andy Stanley wrote, I think, one of the most gutsy books about a decade ago. It was called Choosing to Cheat. His basic thesis in this book was that when it came to his ministry, he's pastor of one of the largest churches in America, his family, he's got a beautiful family, and then his own personal walk with God, he realized early on in the ministry that he could not do justice to all three. Some of you would disagree, but he said, there is no way I can have it all. I can't have all the church that I want and be the family guy I want to be and be sane personally. I, just, I can't have it all. So he wrote a book called Choosing to Cheat, and his argument was you got to cheat something. And for him, he said, I'm going to cheat my church. It was a gutsy book. He, he shared in this book that he would leave every day when he was planting North Point Church, he would leave every day at 4 o'clock no matter what. Every day at 4 in the afternoon he'd leave. And he could tell by the look on some of the staff's faces, you know, there, there goes the sluggard, you know, leaving the office right now. And he would leave with his head high, saying, I'm going to go home and be with my family. I'm going to go home and prioritize my wife. I'm going to go be with my kids. I'm going to go spend some time with God. And he said it was a choice that he made. He had to choose to cheat something. It was a value choice that Andy Stanley made. Let me ask you, do you think it's a coincidence that his church has been greatly blessed as a result? Jesus taught us this, Matthew 22, verses 36 to 40. You all know this teaching. And Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. So isn't it cool that the, 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 the call that we have is to prioritize God and prioritize others and to have margin in the process. So as we wrap this thing up, I just simply have a question for you, and that's what's it going to be for you? I, I mean, you're made in the image of God. If you've accepted Jesus, you're now filled with the Holy Spirit able to make right decisions for your life and honoring God. And as we've always said, Christians have to go against the grain. So are you going to allow progress to continue to rob you of time? Or are you going to manage it, take control of it, as God has modeled for you, and brutalize your to-do list, ruthlessly prioritize, and slow down? I, I hope you can join me in doing that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your word, not being just true, but also eminently practical, has spoken to our hearts and our minds today. And God, we've covered a lot of stuff here, but I pray that there might be just a few handles that each of us can grab onto, something you had for us here today and why we're here when it comes to time and margin in our lives. God, I know the hearts of many of these folks, they love you and they want to do the right thing and they want to follow you in truth and justice, love and grace. And so I pray that as we carve out more space and time in our lives, you might fill it with the right things and things that you have for us. So honor the desire of our hearts, honor our time in your word. May we live this stuff out, we pray, even today and this week. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Corey mentioned earlier that we we're going to close our service today in a very, very special way. In fact, this is a once-in-a-year type of thing. And that's what I mentioned last Sunday and, and then also an email blast this week, email, that, uh, that, that Neighborhood Ministries is one of our closest ministry partners, really in all the world, but certainly here in Phoenix. Kit Danley 
has been a friend of this church for over 30 years, was a good friend of Tim Kimmel, who was our youth pastor back in the 70s, and she started a ministry called Neighborhood Ministries that has just had amazing fruit down in the city of Phoenix. And they're doing a huge capital program right now where they're building a new center for children and youth, and we'd like to bless them in this special offering. So once a month, we take up our elder fund offering that goes to those in need. We've decided to dedicate this entire elder fund offering to neighborhood ministries. So I would ask you as your pastor to be generous here. Hopefully you came prepared to give. If you didn't and you, you aren't prepared to give what you want to, you can certainly give tomorrow or anytime this week and we'll, we'll hold it till Friday, but we hope you came prepared to give to this and let's bless neighborhood as, uh, as God leads us. So why don't you bow with me right now and let's commit this time to the Lord because Troy's gonna lead us in a follow-up song. God, thank you that uh, you've blessed this city with some amazing works of you and lord not the least of which would be neighborhood ministries we thank you god for their 30 plus years of work in the valley in reaching out lord to those in desperate need and giving them the love and hope of jesus christ in very tangible ways and as they continue lord with that and now need some research sourcing for that we pray god that you might use us to be of profound encouragement and tangible help to neighborhood ministries and may they receive this gift, Lord, knowing from what that which was intended and that's to be a love offering to them saying, way to go, we love you and we're with you. So God, thanks for blessing us. We want to bless others now with generosity. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.